Dear God, I thank you for each person here today. Lord, we are grateful for holidays that remind us of nobility and honor and sacrifice. Lord, we do lift up those families in particular that have lost loved ones who served this country and paid the ultimate price. Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that we have, and I pray that we would be vigilant to protect those and to keep those for the next generation. Lord, I do ask for your blessing for each person here, and we invite your Holy Spirit to do his work among us, to encourage and to help and to heal and to make whole. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus, name above all names, amen. Author uh, Tish Harrison talks about a spiritual director that she knew that was very effective with people. And this particular lady would meet with someone and try to help them grow in their faith. And one of the habits she would do when she would have a meeting with somebody is she would have them sit alone in silence for 10 minutes before they got into what they were going to talk about and what else they were going to do. And while that may not sound that unusual depending on your devotional life or for many people to just sit in silence for 10 minutes was something new and very difficult. And this spiritual director said that many, many of the people that came to her um, in the course of that 10 minutes would begin to cry because so many of us have traumas or sorrows or difficulties in our past or that we are facing um, in the current moment, in the present. And so it's no wonder that in the scripture, the Psalms, which is the prayer book, the hymn book of the Jewish people, is so full of Psalms of lament. It's actually the most common type of Psalm in the book. is because people do have scars. You know, many of us have literal scars, You know, I know one time when I was a kid, my cousin Sean and I decided to race to the front door. We made the front door of our house, my house, um, the finish line. And I ended up putting my left arm through the storm door and had 19 stitches and a good scar uh, because of that. I totally won, so I guess it's worth it. but, But we all have scars, and every scar has a story, right? And many of us have scars from trauma in our lives. You know, physically, if you think about the Apostle Paul, I won't read the whole list, but think about what he would have on his body, scars, markers from the trauma and the difficulty that he went through. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. Can you imagine being whipped for the faith. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. I mean, you just picture him crawling out of that. Three times he was shipwrecked. And he went through all kinds of danger and adversity and difficulty for the kingdom of God. He wore some scars. And so today as we think about the price and the sacrifice and the the pain that people have gone through uh, for the love of country, I want us to think about trauma in our own lives. You know, it's been fun watching this new baby in our family, watching this, this little granddaughter, and she's always kind of, you know, looking for her 
person, which is, you know, it's, it's Maria, her mom first, and then James the second, and then I think, you know, Deli and I are in there, and, um, but she's looking for who's that safe person, who's my person, and we all come with that. We all want connection. We all want that, and yet trauma damages that desire. Trauma like takes a, a moving picture, a, a movie, and stops it in a horrifying snapshot. There are a couple of kinds of trauma. There's big trauma, you know, like a big T, and those are horrible moments. They're, they're the kind of moments that you might look at your life and you might think about there's before this particular trauma and there's after this particular trauma. It might be the death of a spouse. It might be um, the loss of a parent. It might be when you got a particular diagnosis. It might be a rape. And so there are these big T traumas that affect our lives. You know, an example of one that happened to many countries around the world, December 26, 2004, was one of the largest tsunamis in recorded history. It was a 9.1 earthquake. Two tectonic plates shifted on the seafloor, and there was an upward thrust of about 50 feet along a 900-mile fault line. Billions of tons of water were displaced. I mean, just billions of gallons of water were displaced, and two huge waves took off. And within 20 minutes, the first 100-foot waves began to hit Indonesia. About 100,000 people were killed there. By the time it was all said and done, 230,000 people were killed in over 14 countries. Absolutely big T trauma. One author in describing to have a sense of the waves that hit the shore, imagine being on the balcony 10 stories up in a hotel and being able to reach out and touch the water. And yet that water's hitting you at 30 miles per hour. Absolute devastation. And yet some of you have survived big T trauma in your life. There are sometimes traumas that we could have prevented. You know, we could have headed it off or at least lessened it. I think of Hurricane Katrina when it hit New Orleans in 2005, um, impacted 100,000 homes, 1,800 people died, and um, the levees were built to code, and the code required that they withstand a Category 3 hurricane. Hurricane Katrina was a Category 5 And they knew those existed, but they had the code at this level and got hit at this level. And I think that's hard when a trauma is something that we could have done to lessen. We could have headed it off in some ways. It's very difficult to deal with big T trauma. There's little T trauma. These are not as big. Um, It's maybe the difference between being stabbed and being cut with a thousand paper cuts. I mean, it, it still really hurts, but they're much smaller. About 70% of American adults have encountered some kind of trauma at some time in their lives. It's around 230 million people. Uh, They say 46 million, this is in the book called The Christ Cure by Tim Murphy, 46 million will develop PTSD. There's really two pillars in trauma. One is the perception of being overwhelmed, like I'm completely overwhelmed. The second is the perception of no agency to change the situation. The person feels powerless. Maybe you're a child. 
and you were abused by an uncle or even a father. And one of the reasons that trauma is so complicated for people is it's not just mental or spiritual, it's actually the brain, it's actually the body. One of the most famous books about trauma today, it's called The Body Keeps Score. Now, it's not a Christian book, but it has a lot to say that's helpful. So there's this this combination of the spiritual and the mental and the physical when it comes to trauma. I was reading about this concept of hyperarousal, which is the idea once you've you know, had a big T trauma, um, your brain is kind of on DEFCOM 1. I mean, you're on high alert. And so you're always looking for danger even when there's not danger. And you might say, well, that sounds good to be on high alert. That, that makes life better. Well, you can only do that for short periods of time. It'd be like trying to take your car and, and maybe it can go 120 miles per hour, but you can't do that consistently. You know, you, you can't just stay at that. You have to dial it back. Trauma truly is one of life's great disruptors. If you had serious childhood trauma, the research shows that children who experience that have nearly double the rates of psychiatric disorders as those who did not have childhood trauma. It is, it is a profoundly painful experience if you have experienced these kinds of things. One of the big standout traumas in the Old Testament with the Jewish people was when, because of their own sin, because of their own flaws, they, God gave them over to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians came and dragged off many of them, and they went into exile for decades, I mean, 70 years. And so, finally, though, God always gave them hope, you're going to come back, uh, there will be hope. There will be a, a regathering. And so after all this time, they come back and they begin, to, they lay the foundation of the temple. And there's this powerful scene where um, they're celebrating, part of the crowd is celebrating at the new foundation of the temple. This, you know, great picture of God's restoration and faithfulness. But part of the uh, older men are, are crying and weeping. And I have a couple ideas about that. One idea is that it was the temple was smaller than the temple of Solomon before it. And so there's maybe some disappointment, even with God. But also could be, um, it was pointed out to me that it could be just, you know, they'd been gone so long. They'd survived this incredible traumatic experience. Because when they were in Babylon and Persia, I mean, there were efforts at exterminating the Jews. Go read the book of Esther. And, and so here you have these people who survived all these horrible things and they come back and they're just overcome with emotion and tears because they are getting to see the fulfillment of the hope and the promises to get to see the temple be rebuilt. And so trauma is a really difficult thing. How do we move forward? How do we move forward? And you know, in a 30-minute talk. I can only scratch the surface, but let me give you a few keys. You know, what are we going to do? One is to embrace the mystery. Embrace the mystery. You know, our perspective is so limited. If we were to talk with someone like us during the time of the Roman Empire, and we were to ask them what's important, what matters, they probably would have said some of the headlines of the day. They would have talked about Rome. They would have talked about that empire and all of this. And yet, now that empire is gone. We have such a 
horizontal perspective. We have such a limited perspective. And the kingdom of God is always marching forward. God's plan and God's purposes is always marching forward. And so we are to be about his story. We're to be about that. We're to focus there. But it's, it's hard. We don't understand, like, why are we facing this particular difficulty? Why did someone do something so horrible to us and betray us or hurt us? I think of the psalmist in Psalm 44, verse 23 and 24, who cries out to God in frustration. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? And so there's this this struggling with why God's not intervening. Why haven't you helped us by now? Even Jesus, fully human, fully God, on the cross, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I love that particular line because I think it does reflect some of his emotional reaction to the cross. It was horrible. It was agonizing. But I also appreciate that it's the first line of Psalm 22, which has a detailed messianic prophecy about the cross. So it points to the sovereignty of God. And as you look through Psalm 22, you see the sovereignty of God. You see the line that there is dominion belongs to the Lord. And so we embrace the mystery that there is pain, there is difficulty, there is trauma. But God is at work. And God is in charge. And God is in control. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so the difference between, you know, me and my, our our new grandchild in our thinking comprehension doesn't not touch the difference in perspective and knowledge and wisdom that we have with the all-powerful, all-knowing God who knows the past and the present and the future. I think of Job who lost everything. In the book of Job, this ancient book, he loses his wealth, he loses his reputation, he loses his children, he loses, I mean, just absolutely everything. He loses his health. And in the book, you see chapter after chapter of him crying out to God. I mean, he clung to God, but he never gets really an explanation in the book. But God shows up, and God's answer is, I'm God, and you're not. Now, personally, I don't find that particularly satisfying. But it is an answer. Job, you don't get it. I'm God, and you're not. Were you there when I... And he starts going through his resume as creator. And so we need to embrace the mystery. In the midst of pain and trauma, we have to grab hold of that in deep trust to God and embrace that mystery. Lisa Turkhurst, author and, and teacher, she says this, sometimes you just have to walk in your I don't know. And I like that. And when you're talking to someone else and they're in a hard time, when they've experienced a trauma, a betrayal, it's okay to say, I don't know. Because we don't. Elizabeth Elliot, one of my favorite authors, she went through a really difficult time. Her, um, she and the other uh, missionaries, um, their husbands went to this very 
brutal tribe and tried to share the gospel with them. And this tribe killed all of the husbands. And so here's Elizabeth Elliot in the jungle with a child, and her, she's now a widow, and she and some of the other women continued to reach out to that tribe and share the gospel with them and to have a profound impact on that tribe of people. I, I can't even imagine what went through her head, what, what she went through. And I love what she said. She said, we are not adrift in chaos. We're held in the everlasting arms. In the midst of her grief and pain and trauma, she visualized herself being held in the arms of a loving father, of God. I was talking about this point with my wife um, yesterday, and, and she said, I don't know, embrace mystery sounds a little positive for what you're talking about. And so maybe if, if you think it's a little too positive, maybe endure mystery, you know. Sometimes we just don't know. We have to endure the mystery of it. Answers will eventually come. I think in heaven, I think there's going to be an answer room. At least I plan on going to it. And I hope that, that there are answers available. Maybe we won't care at that point, but I'm kind of hoping there are. The second idea is we need to face the pain. It is incredibly damaging if we deny the pain, ignore the pain, uh, numb the pain. Gregory Jantz in his book, Triumph Over Trauma, says damage unrecognized is still damage. And so don't numb your pain. Turn towards it. Face the pain. Robert Frost has a poem, A Servant to, uh, a servant to Servant, and he says the best way out is always through. I think there's an interesting illustration I was reading from Nature, the difference between how cows and bison handle a storm. And I know you're really curious about this. You hoped I would explain this. You're in luck. So anyway, cows, when a storm comes in, cows scatter and they'll try to stampede. They'll try to run from the storm. Bison, on the other hand, will, um, they'll band together and run towards the storm. And so what we want to do is we want to not act like the cows. We want to turn and face the storm. And if you look at the bison, the, you know, what's there, it's protective. Um, they do much better if they go towards the storm, towards the wind. And so we want to do that, band together and head towards the storm. Face the pain. Always turn towards the pain. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I love the honesty of this. You're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's hope. There's hope. So face the pain. And maybe it's surprising that God does not take away our vulnerability, but is it's amazing to me that the way he deals with our vulnerability, the way he dealt with our pain, is that he stepped into it through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows. He experienced grief. He was betrayed. He was denied. He was rejected. He was crucified for crimes he did not commit. Jesus entered into our vulnerability. 
And we find freedom through that. We just celebrated the cross, which gives us freedom and forgiveness for our sins. I appreciate the fact that Jesus, when he stands outside the grave of Lazarus, his good friend, he knows the end of the story. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet Jesus stands at that tomb and he weeps. He faces, he feels, he expresses in the presence of pain. There are so many things in life that we can't necessarily do much about, but we are to do something with. We're to allow God to redeem it and to bring good from it. And so don't avoid, don't numb, don't walk away from the pain and the trauma. That is often the source of a lot of addictions. And so create spaces in your life to deal with that pain, to face it. Lisa Turkhurst, again, she says in her book, it's not supposed to be this way. Jesus is in the process of turning your hurt into wisdom, and this wisdom will be life. I really wish, and I bet you do too, that I learned the deep lessons, that I learned the most profound spiritual truths in times of prosperity and frivolity, but I don't. I learned the deep lessons in the hardest, most difficult times. And that's how life is. And so we've got to face the pain. The next idea is to struggle to forgive. Because here's the deal. Most of the time, I mean, sometimes there's natural disasters. Sometimes there's, there's trauma that happens because we live in a fallen, broken world. God's good creation, but we broke it through Adam and Eve and through our sinfulness. But the struggle to forgive And I put the word struggle because it's difficult, it's hard to do. A lot of our trauma comes from the free will, sinful decisions of other people. I shared with you a few weeks ago about Jerry Seitzer who was driving one night and he he was hit head on by a drunk driver and in one moment, in one accident, his mother died, his wife died, and his little girl died. And he was left with three children to try to raise and to walk through. And that drunk driver was never convicted, never punished for what happened. After all that damage, all that hurt, you better believe he struggled to forgive. But we have to remember, we have to grab hold of the fact that grace is the first and last word of our faith. We are saved by grace, and we are called to turn around and offer grace to other people, even those who wound us, even though who's, those who betray us, even though who lie, those who lie about us. We are given grace, and we have to share it with others. So we struggle to forgive, and that can help us deal with trauma. We also seek connection with God and the people of God. Now, this is the point where my wife, the therapist, would jump up and down and be excited about this because this is kind of what they do. And this is important. Connection is one of the major keys to healing trauma. And on her sheet, she talks about this some, but connection with God is where we start. We are welcome to the table. We are made part of the family. And... One of the verses that just reminds us to stop, to pause, to connect with God, Psalm 46.10, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. We live such frantic, hectic lives. Just hit pause. 
You know, in the Psalms, there was this word selah, and it's just in there in the Psalms, and you see it, and it just means pause, take a deep breath, be still in the presence of God, be quiet. God is the ultimate answer for our trauma. He is the long-term companion. In Psalm 145.18, it says, The Lord is near to all those who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. There's a story um, in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6 kind of makes a quick reference to it. In Isaiah chapter 6, so it says that when King Uzziah died, and King Uzziah was one of the good kings, there weren't a lot of good Jewish kings, or a few, but not a lot, and Uzziah was a good one. He started very well. The nation prospered both spiritually, financially, in his reign. But then he got arrogant, He got proud, and he decided, I'm going to go march into the temple, and I'm going to offer incense. I'm going to do, I'm going to act like a priest. He got out of his lane, and he thought, I'll just be a priest too. He just got really big for his britches, I guess. And he decides to do this, and the Lord strikes him with leprosy, which is this terrible disease. And so he has to spend the rest of his days kind of living in his own little place, isolated from the others. And then he dies. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, at the beginning, it says, when King Uzziah died, and that represents trauma. That's a picture of a national trauma. Here's a great king. We're excited about this. The stock market's going up. The people's spiritual fervor is rising. And in his pride, he messes it up. And God punishes him, and he dies. And then, you know, there's always a little bit of chaos when there's a change in the king. And I love what happens, though. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, in this time of national trauma, is given a picture, a vision of God. And he gets to see the throne room of heaven. And he sees angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so, in the midst of trauma, we want to connect to God. We want to see God. We want to draw close. We want to be still and know him. John 15, 5, Jesus talks about this strong need for connection with God. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus says, your job is to connect to me. It's so crucial. In Acts chapter 4, you see some of the earliest apostles of Jesus And they're getting in trouble because they're preaching about Jesus in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders, you know, had Jesus killed. And they don't like this because they're laying it at their feet. And they're also saying he rose from the dead, which that kind of hurts, you know, what they're trying to do, which is squash the early church. And they see these men of just absolute boldness who have just been through a massive trauma, you know, Jesus dying on the cross. But through the resurrection, they are now massively and incredibly changed men. And so, I love what they say about them. They look at these guys and they're like, man, they are unschooled. They are uneducated. But they were with Jesus. And he changed everything. And so, as we connect with God, we can heal from our traumas. 
2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And I love that because as we connect with God, it changes how we look at life. See, if you have serious trauma in your background, in your life right now, it shatters the lens through which you look at life particularly if it happened when you were a child. And so having a connection with God can, can correct that, can help that, can change that. You know, there's certain videos that, you know, can, they're kind of time wasters, but they're fun. You know, I don't know what your, it might be cat videos. I'm not a cat person. But one that I think is fun is little babies that their vision is bad and they put little glasses on them. Have you seen those videos? Aren't those fun? And they just light up. And they're like, oh, mom's face is even more beautiful than I thought, you know? And they just get so excited. And when you connect with God, it's like a whole new set of lenses. And you can look at life very differently. I love the description in Psalm chapter 147, verse 3. It says, um, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God is the great physician. So there's connection with God. There's also connection with others. He doesn't, you know, even in the garden, remember what does he say about Adam? He said it's not good for man to be alone. Well, he had perfection and he had God. There still was this need for horizontal relationships, for connection with other people. There's still a need for um, others to be in our lives. In his book, Triumph Over Trauma, Gregory Jantz says, healing from trauma almost never happens by yourself. You need to connect with other people. Build relationships with other people. Get to know them better. One story I probably shared with you, but I, I like of our son Henry. Um, he was, I forget how old he was, but he comes to our, my wife, Deli, and he says, he says, you've been creeping around the house my whole life. Are you ready to tell me who you really are? He just wanted connection, I guess. And kind of a, painful picture of this desire for connection. Dallas Willard, who's an author I like, when he was three years old, his mom died. And he literally, as a three-year-old, tried to climb into the casket to be with his mom one more time. We are made and wired for connection with other people. All these one another's in the New Testament, how bear one another's burdens, all come, you know, all these things. We are to connect with other people. Kurt Thompson, who helps people in trauma and grief all the time, he says this. He says, an attuned presence is the antidote for trauma. An attuned presence. Having someone who's a compassionate listener in your life. It can be a mentor. It can be a therapist. It can be a good friend. But having that compassionate, attuned person in your life can make a huge difference. John chapter 9, there's a story of a blind man. And Jesus heals him. He opens his eyes. And the religious leaders get mad because Jesus broke their, their rules, their man-made rules around the Sabbath. And they call this guy in and basically yell at him. And he's, you know, because they're like, you know, Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. And the guy's like, look, I was blind and now I can see. 
I think God likes him. You know, I mean, that's kind of the essence of what he said. And they're like, get out, and they throw him out of the community. And so, you know, Jesus and the apostles come around him. But um, you see this, his only crime, this blind man, is being healed. His only crime is getting healthy. And to be perfectly honest, in a group this size, somebody's got a family of origin that your crime and what may get you booted or get you in a lot of trouble is that you start to get healthy. You start to change. And so it's so crucial that you make sure you build community around you that is God-honoring, that is compassionate, that helps you to walk out the purposes of God. You know, one little practical plug, you could still jump in, you missed a week or two, but my wife's running a group on Tuesday nights that is called Try Softer, and it's a trauma recovery group. And that could be helpful to you. Um, now, this Tuesday night is also game night, so, you know, it's up to you. Um, whatever, you know. You know, if, if losing to me in game night, if you need trauma care afterwards, that's fine. But no. Um, we are each a work in progress. I think the author of Try Softer that Deli's using, I think she has a phrase, it's okay to be unfinished. And it is. Nobody's done. You're not done till the end. And so walk forward and connect with God and connect with others. That makes a huge difference when it comes to trauma. Uh, the last idea is practice resilience. The Apostle Paul, I think, is the poster boy for resilience. I mean, you beat him with rods, he gets back up, he's good. You stone him and leave him for dead, he crawls out of there and goes and preaches to the next town. The Apostle Paul is the picture of resilience. He is the energizer bunny of the apostles, in my opinion. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he writes this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now that verse can get ripped out of context and, you know, I'm going to be the best drummer or the best athlete or whatever. This verse in context is talking about Paul and his troubles. It's talking about Paul and his traumas that he faced. And how can he walk through this? How can he move forward? How can he continue to walk out the purposes of God in his life? Because God gives him strength through Christ. And so this is incredibly important. And it can be really simple. Back to Elizabeth Elliot, who I, I love, and I told you the story of her losing her husband on the mission field. Elizabeth Elliot said something that it just grabbed me years ago. You know, people ask her, they said, how did you do this? You know, you and the other wives, you had lost your husbands. It was, had to be terrifying. Maybe they're going to come for you next. You know, how did you survive that? How did you do that? How did you walk that out? And Elizabeth Elliot said this. She said, you know, I just did the next thing. And if the next thing was take care of my child... I do the next thing. If it's to do the laundry, I do the next thing. If it's to work on a Bible study, I do the next thing. And it's just putting one foot in front of the other. It's practicing resilience in the midst of difficulty and challenge, betrayal, and trauma. Jerry Seitzer, who I mentioned earlier, who lost his mother, wife, and daughter all in one accident, said for a long time, he said, I kept running the movie forward of the life that I wanted with them in it. And he said, he finally hit the point where I said, I have to just stop and I have to ask myself, what can I make of this life that I actually have? 
What can I make of that life? And he practiced resilience. And he looked at his three children who had gone through this horrific loss, this incredible off-the-charts trauma, big T. And he said, these three children are going to take their cues from me, their father. And I've got to guide them. And he did the absolute best he could. Lisa Turkhurst has a prayer that she likes to pray. And she's been through some tough stuff. A husband that cheated on her and just painful things. And she said, this is a prayer she goes back to a lot. She says, Lord, I trust you to redeem this and return it to me as part of my testimony. So I'm giving it to you. I trust you to redeem this. Trauma does not have the last word over your life. You are not defined by your worst day. God gets the last word. And he chose the word. And I, it's one of my favorite words of the Old Testament. He chose, I think, for each of you the word shalom. Shalom simply means peace, wholeness, the fullness of all that God intended for you. Counselor Adam Young talks about kind of the big picture of humanity, and he he describes it in relation to shalom. He says, you look at creation, what is that? That is shalom, wholeness, peace, the fullness of what God wanted for us. The fall where Adam and Eve sinned and defied God and rebelled, shalom shattered. Most of human history, shalom pursued. We're looking for that. We're looking for that peace. And finally, in the new heavens and new earth, through the redemption of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, shalom restored. And so the big idea this morning is shalom is for you. That's the last word from God. Whatever your trauma, the loss of a child, an addiction that has just destroyed a relationship, shalom is for you. God wants you to be at peace. He wants you to be whole. And he offers that. There's a process to it. It's not usually instant, but it is available. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you're the God of shalom. We thank you that we can be people of peace and wholeness. Lord, we lift up the pain and the traumas and the difficulties in our lives and we come to you for healing. You're the great physician. There is no other place to go. Lord, we thank you for giving us yourself, for giving us other people in our lives that we can experience healing and growth. I just pray for any person here I'm sure in this group there is pain in this room and we ask for your healing and your blessing in the powerful name of Jesus, amen.